Thank you for downloading this episode of New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. For each episode of the podcast, we choose an interesting new book about some area of world sport, and we talk with the author. For this episode, we welcome back to the podcast, Tony Collins, professor of history at De Montfort University in England. Tony has been a guest twice before on the podcast when we discussed his social history of English rugby union and his book on sport and capitalism. For this visit, we're discussing Tony's latest book, The Oval World, A Global History of Rugby, first published in 2015 by Bloomsbury and just out recently in paperback. Tony's book builds on more than two decades of research into the history of both rugby codes, union and league. Three of his previous books on rugby and modern English history have earned the Aberdare Literary Prize, the annual award of the British Society of Sports History. And with The Oval World, Tony continued this string, earning his fourth book prize. Unlike his previous books, which concentrated on the country that gave birth to rugby, this new work looks at the full global reach of the sport. From Australia, New Zealand, and Japan, to Italy and France, South Africa, North America, Argentina, and countries in between. Like all of Tony's books, The Oval World combines scholarly rigor with attention to the colorful anecdote all presented in a readable style. And, of course, it's always a pleasure to visit with him about his work. So here's my interview with Tony Collins. It's a pleasure to welcome Tony Collins back to the podcast. Tony, thanks for taking the time to join us. Thanks, great to be back. Yeah, so Tony, introduced uh, you introduced yourself and, and talked about uh, your, your long-standing interest in rugby way back when you were first on the podcast, and that was, that was six years ago that uh, you made your first appearance on the podcast. So uh, I'll ask you, why don't you refresh our memories and, and tell us how your, your love for rugby developed and, and what led you to become a historian of the sport? Um, it's a long story, and in fact, I, I, I tell a little bit of the story in the introduction to, to the Oval World. Um, I grew up in a part of Britain where rugby, in particular rugby league, is the dominant sport in, in uh, uh, a port on the um, uh, east coast called Hull, and it has two professional rugby league teams, uh, one from the west side, uh, the other from the east side, and my family, well, in fact, my father's family come from the east side, which is the Old Kingston Rovers side, so... Uh, and he uh, was taken as a young boy by his father, and his father took him. So I kind of, you know, like soccer in a lot of places, or um, you know, baseball in the states. Uh, it's just something that uh, was part of the the warp and weft of every, everyday life. But in terms, of, it never really occurred to me to to study it as an academic subject uh, until much later when. Um, one of the interesting things that I guess uh, once you get to know a little bit about rugby, one of the questions you ask is why are the two rugby's? And obviously, as a child growing up in a very rugby league uh, atmosphere, I mean, we never watched rugby union. There was no uh, senior elite level rugby union anywhere near where we lived. Um, but that question, why are the two games called rugby? And when I became, uh, when I started academic study, when I started uh, doing my master's uh, studies uh, in the late 1980s, it occurred to me that this is actually a really interesting question because it's it's a split that took place between league and union in the late 1890s in Britain uh, when questions of social class, commercial entertainment were at the very for- forefront of society. And uh, it occurred to me that nobody had really studied the history of uh, certainly the history of rugby league there'd been one or two very interesting things done on rugby union particularly in Wales by Gareth Williams um, and so I thought well it, it kind of brought my, my own personal uh, uh, history uh, alongside uh, and complemented my academic interest which were late 19th century uh, British social and cultural history so that's how I start so I'm in a very lucky position where I'm kind of Studying one of the things that is uh, is both uh, a passion, but also part of, uh, in many ways, part of my family history. And 
so that results. So I did a PhD on uh, uh, on the birth of rugby league on the 1895 split, and things just kind of went on from there. In a sense, rugby got became more and more interesting to me as I learnt more about it, uh, which I guess is how I ended up doing the Oval World. Well, I was going to ask about that. So you've written about you've written histories of rugby league. You've written about the split. You've written histories of of uh, rugby union. Uh, but this is a book of of uh, much different scope and of much different size. I think you could fit all of your other books inside of the Oval World. And and so, what led you to take on a project like this? Um, yeah, hubris. Because uh, <laughs> you kind of think. There's more to can I can you know can I write a book that contains everything I really want to say about rugby? Um, so it, uh, I think not. One of the things that I discovered when I was writing about rugby in in Britain, both rugby league and rugby union, is that you can't really discuss it outside of an international context. Despite the fact that the games evolved in Britain and were born in Britain, um, very quickly they became became seen as part of. Um, well, part of the British Empire, and then this rugby spread to France, and so then there's a lot, lot of um, very interesting material about how uh, Anglo-French rugby uh, reflected that change in Anglo-French relationships at, at a political and national level. So all these, so rugby is clearly, as I think most sports are, but rugby is, is clearly. Uh, an international sport, it's it expanded around the world to first to the British Empire, then to France, and then to many other countries. So there's a lot of very interesting things to say about that. Um, and I think the other reason why I wanted to do um, a global history, the book's title, The Global History of Rugby, is um, it's something that um, I've been very influenced by, uh, in a lot of what I've written by Eric Hobsbawm. And one of the things Hobsbawm said maybe 20 years ago was that the really interesting work now is about global history, whether it's politics, uh, society or whatever. And I, I think that's increasingly true, partly because we're living in a smaller world, so it's easy to do these things, uh, just in terms of the research. But also because simply on a day-to-day level, we're now in a position, you know, if you're a sports fan... You can basically watch pretty much any sport whenever you want, providing you can afford the uh, the pay TV cost. So, you know, we're living in a global sports world, and uh, I, I thought, well, it, it's a great, it's a really interesting subject. Rugby's a really interesting subject because of its own global nature, but also again because of the things that it can tell us about the way that the world. Um, has changed and is changing from its inception in the 19th century. So you do address these these larger issues in in the book, but something I noticed, you know, having read your other books, is uh, you know I would say your other books are more concerned. They're they're more social history, and and I recall from talking uh, talking with you before, uh, you see yourself as a social historian, and and rugby, whether league or union, uh, is the lens through which to view uh, changes and continuity within within society. Uh, and and in your past books, I recall, you know, thinking particularly of uh, social history of, of English Rugby Union, I can't recall that you even describe a match. Uh, whereas the Oval World, you're, it's full of match descriptions and accounts of, of uh, important tournaments and you discuss the players and so forth. So it's, it's a much different book in terms of your approach. And I'll, I'll ask you, did you enjoy writing... Um, you know, looking at globalization, looking at economics, commercialization, and media, uh, but this is also a story about about the sport and the sports development. And uh, did you enjoy that that change in approach to to writing about rugby? Yeah, it's an interesting. I mean, partly I took that approach because it, it was uh, the, the book's been published by a commercial publisher, so it's it's a trade publication rather than uh, an academic publisher. So their emphasis was slightly different from they wanted a different emphasis from what uh, what I've done in the past. So I quite like that challenge. Um, but, but I guess also the other thing is that. Um, because I'm writing for a wider audience and I'm not, uh, you know, obviously when you write a, a book it's primarily for uh, an academic audience or certainly for people who have some deeper knowledge, deep knowledge of history. Um, in a sense, 
it's not easier, but it's different. And you, you, you're speaking, you know that you're speaking the same language. But when you write for a broader audience, the thing I found quite difficult was that it's what you take for granted as a historian isn't necessarily taken for granted by the people who are reading it. So, the, so I attempted to get around that and overcome that problem by talking about players and matches and being more, if you like, engaged with the... Um, uh, with the nitty gritty of the sport, with the, um, the the way that the sport is seen and enjoyed by the vast majority of those people who watch it, so that was um, so, so that was quite interesting. And it's a, um, it, I found it quite, as I say, I, I found it quite a, it's quite a tricky thing to do because um, it's very easy to get wrapped up in details of matches and descriptions of matches and. It's quite, I mean, I hope I haven't done this, but to lose the general point, that you, the, the, the more important points you're trying to make about society and politics and culture or whatever, it's, uh, you're always trying to run ahead of yourself to make sure that you're not going too far down the journalistic path. So it was, it, it was quite interesting. The other thing I would say, which I think is a great, which I didn't realise before I started to write it, is that again because of the growth of the internet and the amount of material that is on the internet um, it's actually possible to watch a lot of these matches um, so I was actually so the matches that I wrote about in the early 1950s I can actually watch most of them on YouTube uh, or at least highlights of them and the, the thing that you know they like uh, movie news um, type um, type uh, reports of them so in that, so that was a really, um, really interesting experience to actually see and try and understand how the sport was played 40, 50, 60 years ago and try and interpret that. So it's, in a sense, it was a, it was a journey of discovery for me, both in terms of how to write like that, but also in terms of the material that was, um, that was available. Mm. So the book is is titled The Overworld as you said it's a it's a global a global history of rugby and and one of the key points you make in the book is that the various codes of football played around the world and and chiefly American football and Australian football derive not from soccer but from rugby. Yeah, well I guess it's a kind of uh, it's an it's a, I think it's an interesting example of uh, sort of what we might call proto-globalization in the mid-19th century, although I don't use that term in the book, um, because the influence of the educational philosophy of rugby school, of, uh, of Thomas Arnold, and uh, ideas about muscular Christianity were very much represented by rugby school, very much, rugby school seems very much as the vanguard of these ideas. And as those ideas spread around the English-speaking world uh, and those countries that admired the English-speaking world, such as France, um, rugby went with them. Um, I mean, the best example of that is the popularity of the book Tom Brown's School Days, which was a huge bestseller um, throughout the English-speaking world and also uh, very popular in France, uh, which to some extent accounts for rugby's popularity in France. Uh, and what I found interesting is that, um, although obviously today we talk about globalisation, the way that things can move around the world very quickly, in the English-speaking world in the 19th century, the British Empire and uh, the United States, um, cultural ideas uh, which led to, to ideas about sport also transmitted themselves very quickly. So Tom Brown's school days ended up... Uh, being used, uh, I mean, the New York. I think it was the New York Times actually reprinted the um, the description of the of the rugby match uh, that's in Tom Brown School. There's in in the 1870s before the one of the Harvard Yale games, um, and and that was replicated all around the world in Australia, in Melbourne, uh, when Aussie rules was started to develop in from 1860. A lot of that was based around the. Uh, um, an attempt to uh, to utilise the ideas of muscular Christianity and Tom Brown's school days in Australia and fashion them for Australian purposes, similarly with New Zealand and South Africa. So it kind of um, so rugby as a sport had this inbuilt advantage initially 
over soccer, over the association football code, because it was so tightly bound up with ideas about muscular Christianity. And because they became very popular uh, in the States and the British Empire, rugby became the sport that was initially played. However, it was always in a state of flux. And just as it did in Britain, uh, eventually it split in over, partly over differences in rules as well as questions of professionalism versus amateurism. The rest of the world also started to debate what's the best way to play rugby. And so in North America, in Canada and the United States, ideas about playing rugby without scrums uh, dominated. Uh, in Australia with Aussie rules, the offside rule was, uh, was abandoned. And so they're all, it's from the same starting point of football as played at rugby school as described in Tom Brown's school days. The game started to develop along its own national lines quite quickly. Um, and a lot of these, what's the, the other thing that's really fascinating is that a lot of the ideas about how to play the game crop up in different places. So initially, the idea that you can bounce the that you have to bounce the ball in front of you, like as uh, players in Australian rules do, that was also trialed in America as well. Uh, I think Princeton tried tried playing under those type of rules at one point. The idea that there are, uh, yeah, which is uh, one of the central points of American football, there are four downs. Well, that type of idea was later introduced into rugby league. It has now has the equivalent of six downs. Um, so there's a kind of interchangeability. It's, there's almost a, not quite global, because it's basically the English-speaking world at the time, but there's almost a global discussion about how do we play rugby going on in the 19th century that results in these, you know, in the development of uh, half a dozen different games that can all trace their roots back to rugby school in the 1850s and 1860s. So you point out in, in looking at uh, rugby's development in the 19th century, you, you point out that as the game spread in England, uh, it eclipsed association football, it eclipsed soccer in terms of, of popularity among fans and players. Yeah, initially in the first uh, in the first couple of decades, as the um, from the 1860s, uh, the, the rugby football union, the governing body in England, was founded in 1871, um, which is uh, eight years after the football association was founded in 1863. But the um, the rugby game became the more popular of the two two types of football uh, up until the 1880s. Partly, again, because of this link with muscular Christianity and Tom Brown's school days and the, the importance that rugby school itself had to educational uh, practice uh, in, in Britain at the time. So uh, rugby school was a model school for uh, private schools in England. And so they would adopt rugby because that was a game that rugby school played as well. But it's quickly became. But the the impact of Tom Brown's school is, I think, can't be underestimated. Um, sorry, can't be overestimated because um, it was a huge runaway success. It was literally the Harry Potter of its day, and in fact, the, the story is actually very similar to Harry Potter uh, in a lot of ways. Um, and that meant that people would read the book and. The first major event in the book is this really exciting description of the match that Tom Brown plays once he arrives at the school. And we can, we can see from contemporary uh, letters and newspaper accounts of the way that clubs were formed, this is one of the motivating factors in getting people to play, getting young men to play, to play rugby in opposition to, uh, in contrast to other sports. And so by the time uh, you get to the mid-1880s, um, it's clear that rugby is the more popular of the two games. And I think you can see that on an international level as well, that uh, the, um, the, the, the rugby game, uh, or the games derived from rugby, are actually more popular on an international level at this period than soccer is, which I think explains something about why soccer struggled uh, to get a foothold in the States. Um, but yeah, so by the time, by the time we get to the 1880s, 
there are bigger crowds going to watch uh, major rugby matches in England than what there are going to watch the FA Cup final, for example. Um, and it's you know it's commonly reported in the press that the rugby game is the more popular of the two sports. Not by a huge amount. It's not. It, it's it doesn't have the. It, it's not comparable to the dominance that soccer has in contemporary Britain. But nevertheless, it's still seen as the more popular code by the uh, uh, by those by the press and those uh, who are fans of, of sport. So what caused its popularity to fall behind soccer in England? Um, I think this is a, this is an absolutely fascinating question. I think it's one that um, we haven't really paid enough attention to. Because I think it's, it's very easy for us as historians to, or for anybody for that matter, to look at the state of, uh, look at how sport is today and assume that it's always been like that. And in fact, it's like any other part of society. Sports ebb and flow, they're subject to social forces, to the, um, to good decisions, to bad decisions about people trying to make history, you know, trying to develop their own history, uh, but circumstances don't necessarily favour what they want to do. Um, but in the case of rugby versus soccer, um, one of the, as both of the sports became popular, it became clear that they were becoming commercialised entertainments and players were beginning to be paid, which cut against the grain of the muscular Christian tradition. Um, fears about professionals, uh, professional sportsmen, were very prominent in British sports at that time because the, um, uh, the, the ethos... The dominant ethos was that of amateurism, and that one played the game for the love of the game, not for any material reward. Although, again, this was another invention, which I touched on slightly in the book, but this is an, another invention of the mid-Victorian middle classes, and sport before, previous to that had been uh, ruthlessly uh, professional and commercial. But nevertheless, the, the, by the time we get to the 1870s, 1880s, it, it is assumed that good sport is always amateur sport. But the, infl- the popularity of the, of, of the football codes, and also cricket in a different way, meant that working class players started to play the game. Big crowds came to watch the games, um, many of them coming from a working class background. And they expected that because they took time off work, they should be paid or at least compensated for taking that time off work. When they had a good performance, you know, there was often collections uh, for them in the crowd, you know, if you score three goals or three tries, uh, a hat would go around and there'd be a co- impromptu collection. This was felt by the leaders of both soccer and rugby to be against the ethos of the game. In soccer, uh, things came to a head in the early 1880s and um, over the question of. Um, uh, whether players should be play, whether players who played in FA Cup ties should be allowed to be paid, the FA said no, we don't think this should happen, and they uh, uh, tried try to insist on amateurism. However, the leading um, soccer clubs who were paying players said, well, no, we think we should be allowed to run our club in the way we see fit. Where you know we're running it as a business, and therefore, if we want to pay our players. Uh, we'll do so and if the Football Association doesn't like it we'll break away and form our own Football Association at which point the the FA set back down and legalised professionalism in soccer under uh, strict conditions but nevertheless allowed professional players that was in 1885 the same debate took place in rugby uh, and it came to a head in 1886, the year, the year after, about 18 months after the, the FA had taken the decision to go professional. The rugby union had its annual general meeting where it discussed the issue. And the leads of rugby union uh, looked at the example of soccer and said, hang on a minute, what's happened since so- soccer legalised professionalism is that only those teams that employ professionals have been successful in the FA Cup. Um, they professionals are driving out the uh, the university educated, the privately educated players, and the teams made up of privately educated players, um, and the professionals are dominating the game. We don't want that to happen in rugby, 
And so the rugby union took precisely the opposite tack and voted to make the game exclusively amateur and uh, with the threat that anybody who had received money to play rugby or any club that paid money for its players would be expelled from the game. In, a com- in the commercial world, the commercial entertainment world of the 1880s and 1890s, it gave soccer a huge advantage. Uh, it developed very rapidly. Uh, three years after the decision to, decision to legalise professionalism, it introduced a league system, the Football League was formed. Um, and that meant that soccer had this structure in place where it had leagues, so teams could be followed up the leagues. Uh, to, uh, the, the best teams would play the best teams every week. It became a hugely attractive spectacle. And uh, in terms of its popularity, um, it... It, it grew in a way that few other cultural phenomena grew in that period. So you go from a, a position where in the middle of the 1880s you would get 10,000 people going to the FA Cup final. Within 15 years, by 1901, over 100,000 people went to watch the FA Cup final when Spurs played Sheffield United in 1901. Rugby, however, because it had gone, it had refused to embrace professionalism, that also meant that it didn't allow league, a league system to be developed. It didn't allow uh, a national knockout cup competition to be developed because it felt the, that these were um, would open the door to commercialism and they would weaken the grip of the um, of, of the university and privately educated clubs on the game. And so rugby started to fall back. It's um, uh, com- compared to soccer because um, essentially teams played most of their games as, as friendly matches. There was no league points at stake, no cup competition at stake, and so soccer had, in a sense, soccer had modernised much much quicker than than rugby in terms of the way it was organised and the way it was financed, and so rugby started to fall back. And then, of course, the um, the biggest blow uh, took place in 1895 when rugby itself split into two sports, precisely over the question of professionalism, because the the, the more commercially minded clubs, particularly those in the north of England, uh, wanted to to pay their players. They didn't want professionalism; they wanted to play to pay compensation for uh, time taken off work, so-called broken time. Um, the rugby union refused to allow that in any way whatsoever because they felt it was the first step to professionalism and eventually their intransigence led to the game splitting into two in 1895 so you can see it was the it was the worst possible time for the game to go, for rugby to go into such a deep crisis soccer was on a fantastic um, upward curve and at the same time, rugby didn't have a na- national cup competition, didn't have any leagues, didn't have professional players, and it was split into two different competitions, well, not even two different competitions, two different league organisations that had nothing to do with each other. And so, so in those circumstances, soccer um, uh, became the dominant game in Britain, and I think that was the, uh, the impetus that it had to become the, eventually to become the world's game, spread around the world in a way that no other sport has done. So rugby, though, like soccer, does does spread. Uh, it spreads throughout the the British Empire, the formal empire, as well as the the commercial empire. And and it's interesting in looking at rugby spread in the empire to see this dynamic of uh, of people saying, you know, what we're going to play this English sport. We respect the English. We have uh, our schools are modest, uh, modeled on on English ideas. What you see from rugby school and Tom Brown school days, uh, but we don't really like the English. So to show ourselves as equal to the English, we're going to we're going to play their sport and uh, and match them at it. And and we particularly see this. You describe it in the book uh, in South Africa uh, when the Afrikaners adopt rugby. Yeah, um, that's one of the really interesting. It's, it's kind of the law of unintended consequences. Is that because English rugby becomes so weak, so the English national the English national rugby union team loses 
half half of its players come from the northern clubs that break away to form uh, the rugby league. So the English national rugby union team is immeasurably weakened. And so by the time you get the um, uh, the South African tourists coming over in 1906, and the year before that you get New Zealanders, um, they're able to beat the British at their own game. And I think it's easy, it's easy to... Um, uh, to forget how important this is, particularly for the Afrikaners, because just five years previously, they'd been fighting in the Anglo-South African War against the British, and, uh, which is a war where the, basically the Afrikaners had fought the British to a standstill, uh, a peace deal uh, had been brokered, whereby the, the two, the English-speaking community and the Africana community, uh, were kind of, uh, well, obviously the black population is completely excluded, uh, but the English speakers and the Africaners kind of had this modus vivendi where they would live separately but within the same uh, within the same nation and govern jointly, um, and that's precisely what happened with the rugby with the national rugby team because they, um, when the 1906 team was selected, it was deliberately selected uh, almost on a half and half basis from the two communities. Again, no black players. Uh, the captain was an Afrikaner. Uh, the vice captain was English speaking, and so it represented the in a, in, in a rugby team. It represented the the political. Uh, deal that had been made after the um, after the Boer War that finished just five years earlier, um, and rugby became one, one of the interesting things is that the Afrikaners didn't play rugby to any significant extent outside of the private schools until this period. Um, in fact, the the game had probably been much more popular in the um, uh, in the black communities in South Africa than it had in the Afrikaner communities. Um, but because they could now beat the English on the on the rugby pitch, it gave the sport a tremendous um, a tremendous cachet amongst the uh, amongst the Africana community. So by the time um, the South Africans come back and tour Britain in 1912, and so by the time the 1912 tour has come back, the the rugby tour to England is a huge, hugely important event in South African politics. Uh, you know, reporters cover every every match and send their reports back. Uh, to South Africa, it's followed uh, in Parliament. It's a, it becomes very quickly a symbol of the of the South African nation, particularly the Afrikaners, because not only can the Afrikaners beat the English on in international rugby, they can also beat the the English speakers within South Africa, and so it becomes a kind of double edged uh, symbol of. Uh, what the African community like to see is African superiority, both within South Africa and within the broader context of the, of the British Empire as well, and that and and that's kind of replicated in New Zealand as well. The ability to beat the beat the British, as was done very comprehensively by the 1905 uh, All Black New Zealand Rugby Tours was very important to New Zealand identity. Uh, you know, they, they felt themselves to be a very small country, very far away from the, what they called the mother country and the, 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 and the farthest reaches of the empire. But the fact they could beat the British at their own game gave them a tremendous sense of self-confidence. And the other place where this was true was Wales. Um, the, the Welsh... I can't remember the precise figures, but I think the Welsh beat the English almost ten times. Uh, I think maybe they, before 1910, I think the English only won once and one game was drawn after the split. So in, in the space of almost 15 years, the Welsh beat England almost every year. And again, for an, a, a nation that was newly developing, was industrialising very quickly in the early 1900s, um, uh, Rugby became very important because it was a way of demonstrating the, the vitality of the Welsh nation because of the fact it could beat the English. Now, what would have happened if English rugby hadn't have split and the England team would have remained united and still very strong? What impact that would have had if it wasn't so easy to beat the English on the South Africans or the New Zealanders or the Welsh is, is, is quite an interesting question, but... Uh, 
Um, that, that's speculation. That's for, that's that's not for historians. I don't think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Tony, something you do in the book, and and I really enjoyed this. Is uh, uh, I mean, this is a, a, a complete tour of the rugby playing world. That uh, South Africa, New Zealand, Australia, Argentina, Romania, France, Italy. Uh, and but then you also you write about rugby union and rugby league and and I want to ask you knowing that as you said earlier that you grew up with with rugby league um, you you talk about rugby league in the mid 1990s as at a uh, at a turning point uh, rugby league had more commercial success than it had ever seen uh, in in the 1990s and yet you write its its very existence was in jeopardy so so can you talk about the situation that faced league at that point and and what has happened in the sport since then um, in the mid 1990s rugby league became very popular particularly in Australia uh, but also to a lesser extent in, in Britain and um, that coincided although it wasn't apparent at the time um, but that coincided with the, with the beginnings of the growth of, uh, of satellite TV, of digital pay TV and the the biggest property in pay TV in Australia which because of the dominance of Rupert Murdoch's TV network and Kerry Packer's TV network the biggest sporting property was the National Rugby, well it was called the Australian Rugby League at the time and a war developed in 1995 over who would control rugby league in Australia, who would televise it, and it was essentially who would televise it, but because of the amount of money involved, then who would control it? Was it going to be Kerry Packer's TV network? And it was Packer who had revolutionised cricket in the 1970s with the introduction of World Series cricket, which had also split cricket. Or was it going to be Rupert Murdoch who controlled the Sky TV network, Fox in the States and Sky TV in, uh, in the UK? Um, and they both threw millions and millions of dollars at it. And eventually two competitions uh, were formed, one allied to Packer, one allied to, um, uh, to Murdoch. And the sport went from being a uh, uh, what appeared to be an unassailable uh, position as a commercial success to being something that uh, was divided into not simply in plain terms but also in terms of the depth of anger and fury at the other side was probably hadn't been replicated since the 1895 split between Union and League. And eventually, um, uh, well, Rupert Murdoch signed up the Brit British Rugby League and also some other uh, smaller rugby leagues around the world. So, um, so Murdoch controlled most of Rugby League by the, by the mid-1990s. And it put the game in a tremendous. It put the game in tremendous jeopardy for two reasons. One, because the intense, basically, civil war had broken out, and so and you can still see the scars from that today. People, there are still people who talk to someone or are very suspicious of someone because they supported the other side in the what became known as the Super League War because uh, Murdoch's organised Murdoch's competition was called Super League. Um, uh, but it also meant that, in a sense, rugby league, which had always prided itself on being a people's game, on being uh, a, a, a democratic game, an open game, uh, you know, the, uh, a working people's game, uh, rugby league was suddenly being completely transformed. It was a game of where players uh, could conceivably become millionaires, and it, it, it appeared to have lost its roots and lost touch with its roots. It was now a plaything of rich billionaires. And so that had a um, th that had a, a debilitating effect, not simply on the the organisation of the game, but also on the, the culture of the game, the way it saw itself. And um, in uh, and uh, uh, one of the interesting things um, was that it almost led to um, it was almost like a political divide. And so in Sydney. Um, the South Sydney team, which is which is now a, a global brand thanks to Russell Crowe's ownership of the team and their more recent success. South Sydney were kicked out of the competition because they were a financial basket case. 80,000 people demonstrated in the middle of Sydney in, in support of South Sydney being allowed back in the competition. It was the biggest demonstration that had been seen in Sydney since the Vietnam War. 
Um, on a lesser scale, in Britain, the P Murdoch's uh, Super League proposed that teams should merge. And so, you know, so to give an example from my my hometown, that Hull and Hull Kingston Rovers should merge, which is, you know, the equivalent of saying Manchester United and Manchester <laughs> City should merge. It's insane. And pe people demonstrated against it, and it was like a, um, it was almost, it almost became a substitute for, for something else, for, for people's anger and frustration about what had happened to the industrial north of England. Uh, where rugby league is predominantly based, it, it almost became a um, uh, a substitute. Uh, rugby league and protesting about what happened in rugby league in Australia, and New Zealand, and, and Britain became almost a, a substitute for something else—a a protest against the way the world was going um, in terms of globalisation, the destruction of traditional industries and traditional communities, and things like that. Um, the other problem that the game had was obviously that rugby union went professional, and one of the for, for the previous century, rugby league had had an advantage in that it was a professional game, whereas rugby union was an amateur game. And so, um, if a player wanted to make money from their uh, from their rugby talents, um, if they played rugby union, quite often they would switch to play rugby league where they could, you know, they they could they could make money in a way that they couldn't, or at least openly. They can make money in a way that they couldn't in amateur rugby union. Once rugby union went professional, as it did in 1995, um, rugby league lost that advantage, and so it it, it lost access to a, uh, to a lot of players, and it kind of also lost the moral high ground because the the big thing that um, the big criticism that people in rugby league would make of rugby union and people in other sports too was that rugby union was hypocritical. It pretended to be amateur, yet players derive all sorts of benefits and advantages from the game, um, monetary and otherwise. And, uh, you know, this was a form of hypocrisy. Um, once union went open and allowed professionalism, then the sort of moral high ground disappeared. So, so league underwent a kind of very strange uh, underwent this process of kind of reassessing itself and saw many of its traditional uh, well shibboleths I guess in, uh, in in some ways were undermined by what had happened both internally to the game at that point but also externally with the changes that had taken place to rugby union so right now Tony here in the states the uh, the fastest growing sport at, at universities and colleges in terms of participation is is women's rugby so rugby began, as you talked about, women, rugby began as part of uh, uh, muscular Christianity. It spread as a game to build manly virtue. And, uh, and as you write about, women were not allowed to play rugby for decades in, in the 20th century. So, so looking at the recent advance of, of women's rugby, what has brought the change to allow its acceptance? And, uh, and I'll also ask, uh, do you see, uh, still see resistance in some areas to the idea of women playing rugby? Um, well, to answer the second part first, yeah, I think there's a um, women who play rugby are still subject to a, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, stereotypes, whether it's un, unspoken, largely unspoken now because it's not um, because these things don't necessarily it's it's not seen to be politically correct to, to say these things, but certainly I know from uh, yeah. Uh, from th things that I've heard, that it's you know, women's rugby is still stereotyped as being uh, a uh, uh, as, as a game that's played by women who are not really women, and, and all the usual rubbish that you get about women playing sports that are seen as male sports are still there. Having said that, then obviously women's rugby has made tremendous advantages, and in a sense, it's. It's probably, after the legalisation of professionalism in 1995, it's probably the most significant change that rugby has undergone um, since, over the last uh, 30 or 40 years. It has the potential to change the game. Whether it will, I'm not so sure, because I think the other thing that's interesting is that, the, that women's rugby has adopted many of the cultural practices of men's rugby union. Uh, there is women's rugby league is also applied. It's, it's much smaller, but again, it's growing in, in a similar way. Um, but one of the interesting things about the way that women's rugby develops—it's it's, it's a child of. The, although there was there was 
a, a small amount played in the 1920s, particularly in France, where there was actually a women's league uh, of women's rugby at one point in the 1920s. It faded before the end of the decade, unfortunately. Um, one of the interesting things that, um, that has happened is that the, the beginnings of women's rugby, like a lot of women's sport, was uh, really a consequence of the 1960s and the changes that occurred in society in women's position in society and the growth of the women's liberation movement helped to raise the raise these questions about, well, why can't women play? Um, but it was, it's also the case, I think quite interesting, and this is uh, that um, the game, the women's game became stronger much more quickly in places that were, where rugby traditionally wasn't the, the dominant male sport. So in the USA, um, which is, I think, really, you could say, is the cradle of the modern uh, women's game. It, it emerged in colleges in the 1970s, grew in the 1980s, and the women, the, the USA women's team, it's still very strong, but was particularly strong in the 1990s when the when the Women's World Cup was first played for in 1991. The, the American uh, women won the game. Um, so, in, in a sense, it was helped by the high degree... Well, again, it's... it's uh, the high degree of um, uh, sporting facilities available to uh, women in American college sport, um, thanks to Title IX, but also uh, because they didn't have the same difficulties in playing rugby that women in the traditional women's uh, in the traditional uh, sorry in the traditional rugby playing countries would have had where the game is seen as a marker of masculinity and a way, and something that men do to prove that they're really men um, and so in the states in other countries such as Holland uh, and some of the other European countries where rugby wasn't as dominant it became much more attractive because they didn't have to put up with all the, the, the all, all the all the old male chauvinist rubbish. That, you, that was prevalent in uh, in the most traditional male rugby playing countries. Um, the way that the game spread over the last ten or fifteen years, partly through to its inclusion in the Olympics, um, but also partly through to the fact, due to the fact that the um, uh, World Rugby, the governing body of international rugby unions, put a lot of results into it. Um, it's it's been tremendous. So the, the World Cup is being held in Ireland this year. Uh, there are twelve teams. Um, the standard of play is very high and certainly the last World Cup uh, the England-Canada uh, final um, demonstrated that you know that, uh, um, just what an exciting spectacle the game can be um, and that quality level is spread quite evenly amongst uh, 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 amongst many of the major women uh, national women's teams um, interestingly enough the uh, uh, the New Zealanders after the Americans dominated in the 90s the New Zealanders dominated and it, uh, although England won the last World Cup um, and so it's it's almost now as if there's it's much more of a uh, um, uh, it's, it's it's a tournament that, that's not really as predictable as what it once was and in a sense this, I think the Women's World Cup is probably less predictable uh, than the Men's World Cup when where only four teams have won the, the men's uh, rugby union World Cup, um, whereas in the women's game, I don't think you could say anybody's the favourite in the same way that New Zealand uh, will be in the um, 2019 men's World Cup. I don't think you say anybody's the the the, the dominant favourites or the dominant team in the same in, in in the women's game as as what it is in, as what there is in the men's game. So, Tony, we're almost out of time, and uh, as I said at the start, you, you describe a number of historic matches throughout the book, and you said you were, you were able to watch quite a few of them on, on YouTube. And, and I'll ask, which, which match do you wish you could have seen in person that you describe in the book? It would have to be a rugby league game. The classic one is the 1914 uh, third test match between Britain and Australia in Sydney when the test it was a three-match test series the series was tied at one match each and due to a well basically due to the Australian authorities wanting to cash in they decided to play the deciding test match a week after the second test match so there was no time really for a rest lots of players injured uh, and the British said no no we're not, we don't want to play it they were told that they had to play uh, they have no choice and so they reluctantly took to the field 
and they, within the space of um, 30 minutes, they lost three players injured. They were playing 10 men against 13 men of Australia. Uh, it got even worse in the second half. Somebody else had to go off. They were down to nine men, and they still won the match 14 points to six. Nine men against 13. Uh, it's gone down in history as one of the greatest ever rugby league test matches. And, as, and you know, looking at a broader scale, it's one of the great matches of any football code that ever took place. So if I had one match to be at... Um, it, it, it would have been that match because I think that that sums up everything uh, about everything that's pretend the, the full potential of rugby. It's about individual bravery, heroism, great skill, great excitement, commitment, teamwork. Everything that you want in a sport, I think, was was at that match. Uh, and you read the reports, and people still talk still talk about it today it's the number of times that you see features about it it still it still lives on uh, in the collective memory of rugby league people and and hopefully one of the things I've hoped to do with the book is that it'll bring stories like that to people who haven't uh, looked at the other code of rugby so it'll bring stories of great daring do and heroism uh, from rugby union for rugby league people and vice versa um, so if, it, if it's done that then I'm pleased with the outcome of the book you've been listening to an interview with Tony Collins about his book The Oval World A Global History of Rugby published in 2015 by Bloomsbury New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects like religion, politics, and biography, popular music, and more. Go to newbooksnetwork.com to find the subjects you're interested in. If you like what you heard here, please follow us on Twitter at New Books Sports or friend us on Facebook at facebook.com slash newbooksandsports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thanks for listening and enjoy your week. Thank you.